is influence. It's a quote from John C. Maxwell. Thomas Jefferson once said, in matters of style, swim with the current. In matters of principle, stand like a rock. Max Licardo said, anyone who wants to lead the orchestra must turn his back on the crowd. It's a good one. General Dwight Eisenhower, leadership is the art of getting someone else to do something you want done because he wants to do it. I like that. Douglas MacArthur, a true leader has the confidence to stand alone, the courage to make tough decisions and the compassion to listen to the needs of others. He does not set out to be a leader but becomes one by the equality of his actions and the integrity of his intent. Some wise words, hey? And Napoleon Bonaparte, a leader is a dealer in hope. There's a lot of wisdom about leadership in our world. I just randomly Googled and came up with those in three seconds flat, right? Many great leaders have said many great things about this topic. There are thousands of books written on the topic. I turned my head left to my bookcase and then right to my other bookcase and found stacks of them on my bookcase in my office. Um, on one shelf, I just turned and saw that shelf and counted 15. But leadership's really important. And it's a requirement within basically any group of people if they want to accomplish something greater than they could accomplish by themselves. God knows this. And that is why throughout the entire Bible, he appoints leaders to lead his people to accomplish his plan of salvation for the world. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Daniel, Deborah, David, Solomon, John, Peter, Paul. Like, we could just keep going name after name after name. The Bible is full of stories of great leaders who were great people, who accomplished great things, leading God's people. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul turns his instruction to Timothy to the topic of leadership as he gives specific details on the character of people who Timothy should look to to raise up as leaders. But to give us context for this instruction on leaders, first look at the context that Paul gives for this instruction reading from verse 14. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. The context that Paul gives for his instruction on the character and quality of leaders in the church is so that you may know how you ought to behave in the church. And of course, he gives the gospel, the work of Jesus proclaimed among the nations. So that's the context. How are we as Christians supposed to behave in light of the gospel? Yes, these instructions are for leaders, but what Paul is saying is that as Christians, we should all strive to develop our character and integrity to the extent that we are worthy of leadership. 
the goal for the whole church, for every single person, because you are the church, it's not a building, the goal for every single person is to develop godly character so that we would all qualify for leadership. There aren't any special set of extras that only leaders have to worry about. No, these are the baseline of standards that Paul gives to Timothy for the whole church so that we may know how we should all behave in the church. All of us, not just a special group, not just the ones with some mystical or special anointing or some special gifting or special calling. No, all of us. So who am I talking about? Me. No, no, say it now. Who am I talking about? Me. Right? So this is instruction to who? Me today, right? Great. Um, so put your hand up if you're part of the Church of God. Great. Okay, I don't see many hands down. Wonderful. Um, we could talk to you later about that if you didn't raise your hand. Um, if you are a follower of Jesus, wonderful. This instruction is for you. Do you get that? Anyone unclear now? Anyone ambiguous as to who this instruction is for? Nope, we're all on the same page. This saying is trustworthy. Verse 1 of chapter 3. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Hold on, Aaron. You just said this instruction was for me, and I don't aspire to lead anything. That might be what you're thinking today. Well, this verse doesn't change that. It just gives us more information. Paul is saying to Timothy that leadership in the church is a noble task. It is a good thing. And so it should be something that we all aspire to. Each one of us should develop a godly character and grow in our faith, be shaped by the gospel more and more so that we can become leaders worthy of those titles. Because here's the rea reality. You are a leader. Other people do watch you. You do shape and influence the lives of people around you. And so Paul goes on to outline the character qualities of leaders. And so not only is he talking to you, but you are a leader. So he's talking to you twice, right? He goes on and he doesn't give a job description of a pastor or an elder, an overseer. However, he in instead describes the character qualities. And this isn't an exhaustive list he doesn't say, like, these are the only things. It's basically, here's some examples um, of pictures of a person of mature Christian character. A picture of a person whose faith has had tangible impact on their behaviour. A picture of someone whose life is shaped by the gospel. Remember the theme of the book? The theme of 1 Timothy is that the gospel leads to practical, visible changes in the lives of those who believe it. And that Paul's main focus is that true Christianity is evidenced by lifestyles shaped by the gospel. That is true of leaders as well. So what does he teach? Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. This is like an all-encompassing guide for everything else that follows. A Christian life shaped by the gospel should be above reproach. Integrity, honesty, 
respectability. This is what it means to live above reproach and is a pretty good guide to live by. Before you do something, say something, decide something, think, is this action going to be above reproach? Is it going to be above disapproval or criticism? If our lifestyle is shaped by the gospel, then we'll want to make decisions and take actions that are full of integrity and honesty and that will not draw disapproval or criticism from God. And that's the key qualifier here. It's not making decisions or actions that will not draw disapproval or criticism from other people. If we stand by biblical convictions, we will draw disapproval and criticism from people because our world does not share the same values and is not shaped by the gospel as we are. And so the Bible says some difficult things that our world rails against and is often offended by. Last week's passage is one example, and some might even say today's is too. Now, no one is perfect, but an overseer should be a person that no one can legitimately criticise for the way that they live. They should be free of guilt, even though they might be accused of something inappropriate or sinful. And if our lifestyle is shaped by the gospel, then we will want to make decisions and take actions that are full of integrity and honesty and that will not draw disapproval or criticism from God. Godliness, not worldliness, is the qualifier here. So an overseer, a pastor or elder, a church leader, or really, more specifically, every single one of us should be above reproach. Also, the husband of one wife. Now, the Greek here is quite unique and basically boils down to this. An overseer is to be a one-woman man, faithful to his wife. Faithfulness is the quality here. Now, some say this was to prohibit polygamy or to ban people from leadership who have been divorced, but they don't actually fit the context as Paul's emphasis is on present character. Paul is giving us a picture of the typical approved overseer as a faithful husband and father. But that doesn't mean that he's prohibiting anything else. Those who are unmarried yet exhibit faithful qualities, they qualify. Those who have remarried yet exhibit faithfulness, qualify. Marriage here is a contentious point and has been hotly debated about leadership qualifications. You know, I know several people in my time serving in churches who have been denied leadership roles as elders or pastors because they have been divorced and remarried from this passage. And it makes me sad because what message is that sending to that person? It's a message that is the opposite to the grace of the gospel. Here's the question I always ask. Can God redeem that situation? Of course he can. Otherwise... Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was not sufficient, right? Nothing is beyond the grace of God to forgive. God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances, otherwise we'd all be dead. Divorce itself doesn't disqualify you from your ministry or from leadership. Faithfulness, though, is what qualifies you. Someone whose life is shaped by the gospel should be faithful. Let me say this about divorce. I hate it and so does God. God hates it because he is a divorcee. Just look at that in the context of the nation of Israel. 
that's how he's a divorcee. There's scriptures about that. But we should not ever look to divorce as an option. That should not be in our psyche. Young people, as you're looking for a life partner, do not look for someone who you think, oh, this will be right for a period of time. No, it's forever. You should never, ever think about divorce as an option. That is not a premise to, to go into a relationship with. So let me just say, God hates divorce. Divorce isn't great. We all know it's messy. We all know it's ugly. We all know there's lots of stuff contained with that. But let me say that faithfulness is the quality character that God values for all of us as Christians, particularly the leaders. Also to be sober-minded. It means temperate, sober, vigilant, clear-headed and well-balanced. Not someone who flies off the handle all the time or continuously makes unwise or dysfunctional decisions. Someone who's thoughtful, weighs their decisions and their impact and makes logical choices. No one, not, not people that are wild and extreme. Now someone whose life is shaped by the gospel should be level-headed and reasonable, not excessive or extreme. So sober-minded, self-controlled. It means prudent. The same Greek word has been translated as sensible in Titus 1.8. Overseas won't speak rashly, but will be people of sound judgment, will be, be masters of themselves and of their situation. Doesn't mean leaders can't have a sense of humour and a bit of fun, otherwise I wouldn't qualify, hey. But it means that we should take the office of leadership seriously. Someone whose life is shaped by the gospel should be self-controlled and respectable. It means orderly or, or, or good behaviour, dignified and decent in conduct. It's the same word other passages have rendered as modest. Someone whose life is shaped by the gospel should be modest and respectable and hospitable. It means one who opens their homes to others. The Greek word means loving the stranger. An overseer should be a person who reaches out to strangers, the unsaved as well as believers, and makes them feel at home in their house. We should, we should all be open and welcoming of everyone, not afraid to invite people into our homes or show hospitality in other ways. Someone whose life is shaped by the gospel should be hospitable, able to teach. Now, this is one requirement that's not necessarily required of all believers. And as we'll see later, it's not required of deacons either. And so it is a distinguishing skill required of a pastor or elder. This means an overseer should be apt, qualified and competent to explain and defend the truth of God. So therefore, we've got to have a good knowledge of Scripture, a readiness to teach and the ability to communicate. Now the style of communication obviously varies. Not everyone's a preacher. You know, um, some, some people are good in large groups, some in small groups, some one-on-one. Those are the different contexts of being able to teach. And those are the different contexts. So, so if you're not a pastor or an elder, what it means is that we should all continue to engage with the Scriptures, to study them, to know God more intimately, and to know His character and will closer. So that's an encouragement, is that maybe that's something that God's leading you into in the future, so why don't you do the work now? 
We should all value God's word and his instruction given to us with the utmost importance and respect. And those who do teach, well, we have a high calling to uphold the truth and to, to teach it plainly so it can be understood and acted upon. Next is not a drunkard. Paul used alcohol to represent any enslaving substance. And we're probably correct in extending its meaning to include any destructive addiction, drugs, gambling, pornography, alcohol, anything that you could become a slave to. We could even mention things that are more socially acceptable here, like coffee, <gasps> sugar, nicotine, and the like. But if you are a slave to it, then that's not healthy. But when it comes to alcohol specifically, though, we should always be in control of our actions. If you ever drink enough that you are no longer in control, my question is this, who is? If you've drunk so much that you're not, who is? But I'm not going to preach abstinence as the pathway to godliness. I don't believe there is any biblical prohibition on alcohol, but there is guidance here about excess and not being a slave to a substance. So if you can't end the day without a glass of wine or bottle of wine or beer, then maybe you need to take a self-check. If the first thought that you turn to when things go belly up or you get a bit stressed is a bottle or the thought, I need a drink, then maybe you need a self-check. If people come to you and mention that maybe alcohol might be a problem for you, then it probably is. So take that as a sign that it is a problem and you need to do something about it. See, our culture does not share the same caution towards most substances that we do as Christians. Someone whose life is shaped by the gospel should not be a drunkard or a slave to any substance. Also not violent, not a bully, not someone who resorts to physical or verbal violence to vent their anger or settle disputes. If you're yelling at people, you're combative, even if you never throw a punch. Someone whose life is shaped by the gospel should not be violent. Also, should be gentle. This means being patient and holding yourself back. Someone whose life is shaped by the gospel should be gentle, not quarrelsome. This means someone who, who's not contentious, someone who's not a fighter or a brawler. You know, are you, do you always find yourself in conflict? Maybe you need to ask, why is that? Am I quarrelsome? Maybe I need to work more on being a peacemaker. Someone whose life is shaped by the gospel should not be quarrelsome or a lover of money. You know, it should be free from the love of money is probably a better rendering. And, and it's the love of money rather than the possession of it that is the disqualifying factor. See, poor people as well as the rich may love money. And, you know, moreover, not all re rich people may love it. So the, the opposite attitude is, is contentment. So the character quality here that we should be striving for is to be content with what God has given us. If you're always focused on money, regardless if you have it or if you don't, then where is your heart at? Are you a lover of money because if you had more, it would solve many of your problems? Or are you a lover of money because you do have it and want more of it? Someone whose life is shaped by the gospel should be free from the love of money. Verse 4, we're getting through the passage 
almost word by word there for a while. You were worried, weren't you? Thinking it was going to take a long time if you're going word by word. Lyle, I knew you, you were a bit concerned. Um, but verse 4, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The home is a proving ground of Christian character and a great preparation field for ministry. It certainly makes sense considering the picture of the church as the household of God. And overseers' responsibilities in the church, in one sense, are quite, quite parental. And so it makes sense that an overseer would prove their parental ability in their home before they receive a larger parental responsibility in the church. The home is the proving ground for church leadership. Chuck Swindoll comments on this. He says, A word of caution, though. Nobody's home is going to be perfect 24 hours a day. Even the preacher's kid is going to run down the aisle of the grocery store now and then. So what we need to look for is the general tenor of the home. Are the kids respectful? The home well-ordered? Are the parents attentive, involved and supportive of each other and their children? How is the communication? Is an atmosphere of spiritual development being fostered? Is Jesus Christ openly discussed and revered? It's not necessarily an investigation into the life of, of a leader's home, but it's sort of the undercurrent. You know, what's the tone being set in the home? Someone whose life is shaped by the gospel reflects that in the atmosphere that they create in their home. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. No matter what level of giftedness, time is needed to demonstrate maturity and character. But how new is a new convert? Is it one month, one year, ten years? Well, it requires a judgment call. There should be evidence that this person can function as an overseer, that they can teach and lead and defend the faith well without becoming conceited. It's got a lot to do with not only protecting the church, but also protecting the individual and safeguarding them to be effective leaders for the future as well. If someone is placed into a leadership position too early that they're not prepared for or, or you know, unwisely take on that role when they don't have maybe developed the, the, the required skills necessary, it could be damaging for that person. They may never want to step into leadership again. So it's about protecting the future leaders of the church too, that we don't say to people who are really young and maybe a little bit fresh green around the gills, jump in straight away unless they're really well supported. No sink or swim, right? And particularly not with young people or new converts. If someone is new to the church and immediately wants to join the leadership team, become an elder or deacon, then I think it's unwise in many circumstances to put them straight in. Let them get to know each other, both between the leadership team and, and the church and the person and how the, the, the culture is of the church. You know, the wise pathway forward would be to get to know them, let them get to know the church and the other leaders, to walk with the leaders for a time of discernment and then go from there. And that's the process that we have for, for, for leadership development. And it's also true of new converts. 
Take time to learn the scriptures, to grow in faith. And as you begin serving, see where God is, is leading you and where opportunities arise. Why not take those opportunities as God leads and directs and as the rest of the church supports and encourages and trains and equips? Someone whose life is shaped by the gospel demonstrates maturity and character. And verse 7, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You know, how the church and the gospel is portrayed to the watching world is important. And we are representatives of the gospel and of the church. A building doesn't portray the gospel the people who go in and out of the building do. And so it matters what our community thinks of us because their opinions are formed by their interactions with us. So we should strive towards having a good reputation with those outside the church and be above reproach so we represent the gospel and Christ well. Someone whose life is shaped by the gospel should be above reproach to those inside the church and to our wider community. So two things are clear from this, this longer-than-you-thought list of qualifications for overseer. One, overseers are not guilty of doing something seriously wrong and other people perceive your conduct as proper for a Christian. So why should elders and pastors meet these qualifications? Why should churches not just appoint the best people as, as elders? Well, the effective operation of, of, of each church depends on its leadership. The New Testament doesn't legislate the details of church operations. We're not given the church operations handbook from, from Paul. So it's important then that the leaders making the decisions be spiritual leaders who set a good example and have the respect and confidence of other people in the church and non-believers. Having no leader is better than having the wrong leader. Let me say that again. Having no leader is better than having the wrong leader. I would much prefer to have a vacant leadership position than put the wrong person into that leadership position because that's my role as protector or shepherd of the flock. I want to protect you from bad leaders. And hopefully that's, a, a, that's something that we all share is that we want to protect each other and uphold godly character as the primary foundation for our leaders. Paul then continues and gives instruction on the character of people who assist overseers, which he calls deacons. But again, they're attributes we should all strive towards, regardless of whether we are filling the role of deacon or not. And so he says, deacons, likewise, must be dignified. So similar to, similar to overseers, deacons should be worthy of respect. Someone whose life is shaped by the gospel will be dignified, not double-tongued. So someone who's sincere, not two-faced, saying one thing and living one way part of the time and another at other times. Such a person is honest, not hypocritical, sincere, and a person of integrity. Someone whose life is shaped by the gospel will not be double-tongued but full of integrity and not addicted to much wine. As previous, it means not overindulging in certain... Uh, uh, and, and is certainly not an addict. So someone whose life is shaped by the gospel will not be an addict. Also not greedy 
for dishonest gain. It's self-explanatory. Someone whose life is shaped by the gospel will not be out for their personal gain at the expenses of, of, of others. And they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So it describes someone who is a person of conviction and who, who, who behaves in harmony with their beliefs. The mystery of the faith is the body of doctrine that God has given us by special revelation, the gospel. In today's world, mystery implies knowledge withheld, but in the Bible, it often means knowledge revealed. So that's a little distinguishing factor there, is that the mystery isn't the unknown, it's actually the known, and it's the gospel. So someone whose life is shaped by the gospel will be a person of conviction and faith. Verse 10, let them be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. See, just like overseers, deacons are to be above reproach and without reasonable grounds for accusation, having passed the test of time. Time. And that requires relationship doesn't it spending time to get to know the person's character and how they work in different situations time is a great qualifier so someone whose life is shaped by the gospel will be above reproach verse 11 their wives literally mean is, is a married woman must be dignified not slanderers but sober-minded faithful in all things and so women can be deacons let me say that clearly and here's why because first there's nothing about the office of deacon that would exclude a woman second it would be unusual for paul to prescribe qualifications for wives of deacons but not wives of elders and third the fact that he inserted special qualifications for women in the middle of his list of deacon qualifications seems to indicate that he considered these women to be deacons and so when it says the ESV translates it, their wives, but the literal word is simply a married woman. Um, and outside of this letter, Paul describes Phoebe as a deaconess in Romans 16, and so the offering of deacon is open to women, as Paul teaches here. And so, pretty simply rendered, this could be read, married women, likewise, must be dignified. And Paul gives special instruction to deaconesses. He says to be dignified and worthy of respect, not to be malicious gossips or slanderers, to be temperate and well-balanced, and to be faithful in all things and completely trustworthy. Like, that's the same for all of us, right? There's no difference there whether what gender you are, right? That's the same. We should... Be faithful in all things, be dignified, worthy of respect, not malicious gossips or slanderers. Now, some people think that certain sexes are more prone to that than others. I don't know. Um, temperate and well-balanced, right? And to finish out the list for deacons, he reiterates two of the qualifications for overseers. Husband of one wife and manage their children and households well. Verse 13 for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So the reward for faithful service as a deacon are twofold. One is a good reputation and secondly is increased confidence 
in dealing with other people and with God. And Paul says nothing about the duties of deacons. He didn't associate specific tasks with the office. He seems to have intended that deacons should function in whatever capacity that the overseers may see a need for and to see the church flourishing and healthy as we all strive to live lives shaped by the gospel. So we have some great challenges for us today from this teaching. See, the church needs people of excellent character to lead. But developing excellent character as we're shaped by the gospel is not just for leaders. It's something we should all be striving for so that we are ready when God calls us to lead. Now notice I said when. I didn't say if. I said when. Each of us will be leaders if we're not already. Some of us are called to formalised roles such as pastors, elders and deacons or to oversee ministries. And God knows we certainly need more leaders to help take our church forward into the future that God is propelling us into. So what can you do today in, res- in response to this instruction from 1 Timothy chapter 3? Well, the first is pretty simple. Become someone whose life is shaped by the gospel. That's a basic goal for all of us as Christians. Make a concerted effort to align your life with Christ's teaching and surrender to the gospel to shape your life and character. Second might be this. Remove barriers to leadership that God might call you into. Consider becoming a member of the church. So this is very practical for our context here, but the principle remains. Remove any barriers that might prevent you from stepping into a leadership role. This might also be in your own thinking. Oh, no, I'm not good enough. Oh, I'll never be great for that. Oh, no, that's not something I can do. No, no, no. Remove those barriers and step into what God is calling you into. So if you have good character, then Paul says that is what qualifies you as a leader, is godly character shaped by the gospel. Now, our context here, there are some roles that require membership, because we have a a congregational governance um, uh, set up. So the church member is the seat of governance in our church. So if we want to do anything, that means expenditure, building, whatever else, over a certain amount of money, all those sorts of things, they are required to come to the church where all church members get a vote to approve or otherwise... uh, decisions so the seat of governance is the church members the church members then delegate certain responsibilities to the leadership team our deacons and elders and myself and i'm also delegated responsibility as the pastor to do certain things too but the seat of government is church members so if you want to say in how things are going you know or, or even as a as a sign of you know my encouragement always is to everyone as long as you call this your church become a member be a full member of the body right that's not necessarily like a perks and privileges of membership, like a social club or whatever. That's not how it works. It's basically a commitment to say, look, I want to fully commit to the, being a full member of this body of Christ, this body of faith, uh, while, I'm, while God has placed me here. So that's my encouragement to everyone, is to always become a member. Um, and the requirements for that is that you're a baptised believer. Um, so that's pretty simple in one sense, is the basic requirement for membership is that you're a Christian 
Um, and so, yeah, become a member, remove any of those barriers that might prevent you from serving in any role, uh, and that's a very practical thing. And the final one for today is to be open. Be open and responsive to God leading you into a leadership position. And I'd say this, expect it rather than be surprised by it. Expect that God will take you into a position of leadership rather than be surprised by it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this instruction, this very practical instruction that really encourages our hearts this morning. Lord, to be shaped by the gospel, that our character would be shaped by the gospel more and more and more and more. And Lord, there's some, some great encouragement from, from Paul here to Timothy about the character qualities that we should be seeking to develop in each one of us and particularly leaders in the church. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be an encouragement to each one of us and that we would go through that list and go, yeah, you know, I'm already seeing fruit bearing in my life as, the, as my life is being shaped by the gospel in those areas. But, Lord, there may have also been one or two areas where, they, oh, gee, oh, yeah, okay, I need to do some work. Lord, help us to, to take that, the conviction of the Spirit inside of us and act upon that. And, Lord, that we would consider... Uh, membership if we aren't already today, that we'd consider where we can serve in roles of leadership, where you might be leading us into as well. And Lord, for those that may not say, yes, I'm a Christian today, who may not be a follower of Jesus, who may not yet uh, want their life to be shaped by the gospel, Lord, I pray that this would be an encouragement as well, because this is the goal of all of us as Christians, Lord, is to to, to live a life that is shaped by the gospel. All of those character qualities are what we're seeing to develop. Now, we're not perfect. No one is. But Lord, may that be an encouragement that as a community of faith, these are things we are striving for. We thank you for your instruction this morning. Amen. Well, we're going to close out our service this morning um, by singing again.